Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. RTE in crisis. Senior station bosses appear again before an Oireachtas committee. Director General Kevin Backhurst refuses to rule out redundancies as a cash crisis spirals at the National Broadcaster. I can't give that assurance. I've been asked that by staff around the building. What I've said is I will do everything humanly possible that we don't get to the position of having to have compulsory redundancies. Also on the programme, Garda Chief Drew Harris insists he won't quit despite an overwhelming vote of no confidence by 99% of those polled by rank of file Gardaí who were ballotants. So the answer is an emphatic no. That would be a, a completely um, just illogical response to the situation that we face. And death and destruction in Derna. More than 5,000 people now confirmed dead in the Libyan flooding catastrophe. The Director General has refused to rule out redundancies as the cash crisis at the broadcaster deepens. Kevin Backhurst appeared before an Oireachtas committee today, which also heard the station can't afford a voluntary redundancy package and that the full or partial sale of its valuable Donnybrook site in Dublin 4 are among the options being examined. I think it's fair to say in the short term, there are limited levers I can pull, and I'm pulling every lever I can to try and preserve cash. Allowances related to are being on air, for example. Are people not already paid for being on air? Yes, I have to say the issue of allowances is something that um, we are dealing with. We need to deal with it. There are far too many allowances in RTE. My licence is up for renewal this month. It's €160. Euro. I wouldn't trust you with my €160. Euro. Never mind €160 million. I'd rather go down to Murphy's Barnbull teens and buy a round of drinks. At least I'd know where my, my money went. I'd I, I get more cultural content and I'd get more straight talking from people. You could come here too if you wished, Deputy. I'm joined now by the chair of the Dial Media Committee, Neve Smith, Labour Senator Marie Sherlock, who was also on that committee today, Ireland editor of Independent.ie, Fiona Sheehan, and former RTE broadcaster Valerie Cox. You're all very welcome to the programme. I'm going to come to you first, Fiona, because we talk about you know a highlights package, a highlights reel uh, when we're in television. What was your, I suppose, highlight of today? Hello to them all down in Murphy's and Bulletins. I'm sure they're all looking in. I know it well on the road between Inch Beach and Killarney. Um, the tactic of RTE just seemed to be simply to come in, whinge about the TV licence structure and say, we need more money. And they didn't seem to have anything else really to offer uh, beyond that. And once the committee began to turn to issues on the agenda that had come up previously, where they legitimately said, OK, but you were in here previously. You didn't tell us about 10% pay rises. You said we were going to get answers on what happened with, with Ryan Tuberty's uh, 
pay. You, you told us we'd, we'd find out more about the, the barter accounts. And they weren't getting any answers back in that. And you, got, I can, you could sense a, a frustration developing there. And at this stage, the board and the management of RT that is left in place uh, at the moment, they don't have anybody else left to push underneath the bus uh, at, at this stage. Uh, and they themselves uh, found that they were the ones being the, the subject uh, of the ire. And you'd have to say, with, with some validity uh, as well, I mean, some of the, the issues that were, that were highlighted today around the inadequacies of the board and their own protocols uh, did suggest that, that not everything was being, was being done uh, correctly. In terms of looking forward for, for RTE, uh, decisions will have to be made on the funding in the interim period and, and the longer term, but it's quite clear from today we are looking at a wide-ranging cost-cutting plan involving redundancies, sale of assets, sale of part of the land bank, less programming and less investment in digital. I'm not sure less investment in digital is the brightest move, given that that's part of your, your commercial uh, future. <laughs> but uh, I didn't get the sense today, it was like the frustration that was being expressed on the opening couple of meetings back at the start of June, that you weren't getting straight answers then, and I still don't think that the answers that they're getting from the executive and the board of, of RTE are satisfactory. Um, Kevin Backers would say and did say today, you know, I'm only in the job eight weeks. I am doing my best to get my head around all of this. I am pulling whatever levers are at my discretion at the moment to try and control the cash flow. He did announce this morning there would be this recruitment freeze. He did say there's going to be a stop to discretionary spending. He would argue he has made progress. Yeah, I mean, th those are all interim small measures, but th they're, not, they're not really going to uh, hit the point here, I suppose, uh, what will be interesting to see, will, be, will the committee get to invite uh, the RT management back in over the course of the next month to six weeks when we're expecting some sort of provisional plan uh, for the future which will outline the cost cutting because the message that seems to be coming back from the government end is if they want this bailout, it's not going to be like previous uh, injections of, of cash where there was nothing uh, provided in return. This time around, they're going to have to show uh, what exactly is their reform uh, and restructuring plan? You did say this morning on uh, Morning Ireland, uh, Neve Smith, that not a red cent should go to RDE until you get the answers. And from listening to Fiona, you didn't get those answers today, did you? I think the big problem in all of that, and you're right, Fiona, is that we don't have some of the key players still that provide the information. That is obviously you know, missing from all of the story, and that being D Forbes. We've had the former chair in Maya Doherty, but we didn't get any answers there. It has to be said that when we did have the whole board in today, I asked each and every one of them collectively, did they agree with that assertion of Maya Doherty's that, you know, that the, really the board was blindsided and we saw some of the board members who've been there quite some time, seven and eight years, and then others that are more new to the board, if you like. And they're all of the view that, you know, traditionally, things have, were, were not good, that there wasn't, they weren't being able to do their job, that they weren't being given the, the information. And ultimately, they're all saying now that within the eight weeks of Kevin Backhurst's appointment, there is significant change. And it has to be said, all of the board were, and, you know, as I said, some of them there quite some time, did sing the praises of Shuni Rahali in terms of the expertise that she brings and the oversight that she has brought and implemented on that board since they started. But to go back to your point, we probably will never get some of those answers unless the people who have been absent from the conversation, such as Maya Doherty, such as uh, Dee Forbes particularly, if they don't come to the table to give us those questions that Finland's 
asking and they're very legitimate questions. I mean, he's reflecting what the public are asking, what the committee's asking, what the, the, the minister is asking. We may never get those. And, we do and, have and to if come... you don't, are you just going to have to draw a line under this and do what I think the board, what Shuni Rally and what Kevin Backers were saying today is, we accept the mistakes of the past, we're going to rectify them, but now it's time to look to the future because this cash crisis is is not just looming, it's here, it's now, and we're under major pressure. Yeah, well, I think that really annoyed public representatives. I think Marie might agree with me on that, in the sense that, you know, there is going to be no big bailout here unless there's demonstrable changes within RTE. And it's going to take time, I suppose, to be able to reflect those. We can hear some of the announcements that are being made, you know, register of interests, you know, redundancies, downsizing, maybe Montrose are selling off. I mean, as I've said this morning, everything has to be on the table and they have to be able to demonstrate to the ministers of the day, the minister for finance, the minister for media and the public especially that they've changed their ways and that, you know, the oversight and the corporate governance that have been so lacking up to this point is now in place. OK, what about the two measures that um, Kevin Backhurst announced today? Do you agree with both of those? The end of discretionary spending, as he put it, although we need a bit more detail on what that is, mm. and this recruitment freeze. Is that something the Labour Party would support? Well, I, I think it's been yet another extremely difficult day for RT staff getting that email this morning kind of out of the blue uh, and we know that in certain parts of RT there are already staff shortages and you know the reality is that that recruitment freeze is going to have an impact on the service that people deliver and you know at the heart So do you of, disagree with the recruitment freeze? Well, no, well, well, well I, I, I think you know we now have RT in an extremely, you know, uh, a, 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 an impossible situation where we're seeing, you know, 21% or 21 million shortfall in, 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 in licence fee revenue and uh, government saying that they're not going to, uh, you know, effectively come up with interim funding anytime soon. So certainly measures are going to have to be put in place. But I think it's really regrettable that I suppose that, that, that such a blunt measure is being put in place. I understand it. But I think, you know, we need to look at salaries. We need to look at other things. We need to look at, you know, allowances with an RTE. Uh, and, and the reality is that that recruitment fees is going to have an impact. So I think ultimately, um, to the point, though, about, you know, the, the stages now, before the, the budget, we're going to have this outline of strategic plan. By the end of the year, RT have committed to producing a, a you know, the fully fleshed, uh, fleshed out strategic plan. And then we're hearing that it'll be only then that we're going to hear a commitment on funding or otherwise. I think that is too late. And, and ultimately, if we are serious about supporting RTE, then I think money does need to be provided in the interim in order to ensure that those journalists, that the, all, everybody else in RTE who's going in day in, day out to do their job can actually be supported. But, um, and, and, and that's not to say that there's massive cultural issues that have to be resolved, massive financial and organisational issues. But give them the but, money first and then no, no, we no. get those well, what, changes well, well, later? What, what I'm saying is make sure that RTE can function, right? But the reality is having a plan is one thing, execution of that plan is a very different other. And it is going to be many, many months, many months before we will actually come to terms with whether RT is changing for the good or otherwise. Okay. Uh, one of the things that I know people sitting around their dinner tables this evening will be talking about, Valerie, is this idea that there's a photographer there who's been paid 240,000 for three years' work for taking, yeah. is it 16 photographs a week on the, on the Fair City set? When you hear that, you think this is an organisation that is bloated and that has never actually confronted its costs. Yes, is do. that your experience of the organisation when you work there? Absolutely not. Although 
listening to all of this, I begin to think I was working in a parallel universe because I really didn't know anything about this at all. And I think what actually summed the whole day up today was when uh, Senator Michael Carragy was questioning Kevin Backhurst. And at the end of it, um, Deputy um, Neve turned round and uh, Neve Smith turned round and said, um, are you happy? And he said, no. He said, it's like pulling teeth trying to get answers. And that really summed it up. And for the ordinary person, you know, they don't see beyond this, which is difficult because Artie is stuffed with the most wonderful, creative workers who are producing fantastic programmes and so on. And they are really suffering through this. People are making snide remarks, being nasty. And it's very hard to work under those conditions. And now, not knowing if you're going to hold on to your job if you're going to be sent off to Galway or off here somewhere, or what is actually going to happen. But is that not what might be necessary? And is that not going to be one of the difficulties here? Is that there are going to be unpalatable changes and reforms necessary for all levels yeah. within RTE? And we see today this announcement of a recruitment freeze between now and Christmas, three and a half months, and we have the union coming out saying, Absolutely not. This isn't yeah. acceptable. Are, do, do, do they sorry. accept those changes are necessary? They do. They do accept changes are necessary. and At all levels? At, at all levels, but particularly at the top. I mean, listening to Kevin Backhurst today, he was very frustrated. I mean, he couldn't give them answers. And I was wondering, you know, OK, you've only been in the job for about eight weeks, but I think you should have known about that ad for a photographer that's only within the last few days that that's come out. And, you know, he was asked about that. And what did he say? He said, I myself have asked for the details. I can't believe it's just for the work as described. And then when Imelda Munster um, said the 10% pay restoration was adding insult to injury, and she asked uh, Kevin Backers, could he understand how sickened the public are? And he said, I'm sickened myself. And then on the solo club... Well, he wasn't club, across that pay restoration. No, no, he wasn't. He's only in the job two months. He's only in the job two months. That's fair enough. But you could see the frustration in the answers he had to give. Um, I mean, even the toy show, he said, an awful lot of questions were asked by the executive, but they weren't answered. So where are the people who should be answering them? And he did give us a clue to that because he said a lot of these personnel have actually left the organisation. Well, it's not the difficulty we're in now, Fiona, and what are the government going to do? That Yes, there are outstanding questions, Maybe we're not going to get them. So where does that leave Well, them? I was surprised that the chief financial officer, that's the person in charge of all the money in RTE for the past three years, Richard Collins, who is still in position as the chief financial officer in RTE, who's was appeared not, in front of the other committees, who's appeared before all of the committees to date, including after Mr. Backhurst took over and put a new interim leadership team in place. I was very surprised that he wasn't there today, given the level of knowledge that he has about the organisation, his experience, and the fact that, at, le at the very least, maybe he wasn't involved in issues, but he was certainly there. He might be able to offer some level of insight and sh shed some light on an issue. So, again, that did go back to the difficulty uh, with um, the answers you were getting today. I mean, at, at one point, the person who is now in charge of the accountancy system in RTE, uh, Mike Fives, was asked about this issue of, of Ryan Tuberty and the 2017-2019 payments where all of this, this started. We've now had an interim report. We've had 28 hours now of our Octus committee hearings into this matter. We've had a, a separate report by, by Grant Thornton. And he said, it's very difficult to say if it was on purpose or if it was an accident. 
But how would he know? He wasn't there anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the guy who was actually there at the time is sitting out in Montrose and they can't have him inside the Roxas Committee to answer questions. Yeah, and Shuna Raleigh also referred to that, didn't she, today, and said she would have hoped that these extensive yeah. reports would have been able to answer that very, very important question, and they haven't. Yeah, and look, you know, the Grant Thornton report specifically says that, you know, the, the Deloitte report, and, I, you know, I'm sure viewers are so confused mm. between all the, 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 the whole raft of reports, but that, you know, ultimately that the finance department, which was obviously led by the CFO, failed to pass on the information with regards to the 2017 to 2020 payments to the remuneration committee. So I think the thing is people can draw their own conclusions from that as to whether it was an accident or a purpose, on purpose. The reality, there were failures there. But to go back to a point that Valerie was making there, like actually, ultimately, the RTE is a dysfunctional <coughs> organisation at the moment. So you have people earning, you know, very little, waiting months, particularly their contractors, to try and get paid. Fights going on at the moment about trying to get travel, basic travel and subsistence. And on the other hand, the, the you know the photographer package that we you know we we learned of today, and allowances like we're seeing personal allowances, we're seeing allowances for people with extra responsibilities, which is all really opaque and not transparent. And I think you know that is going to take a while to overcome. But there has that has to be changed in order for that organisation to move forward. So in terms of that question about you know what needs to what are the changes that need to happen? Then actually looking at how people are paid and what people are paid is going to be crucial to that. Um, one other point that was made, um, Neve Smith, at the beginning, I think at the I said it was made by Shuna Raleigh, is that some of the changes that are necessary, some of the reforms, some of the restructuring, is not going to be palatable. And they said it's not going to be palatable to stakeholders, but perhaps not to committee members, to politicians. Our... RTE and is Kevin Backers going to get the support now from all politicians across the political spectrum if he tries to push through some of the reforms that have failed so spectacularly in the past? Well, I think that that's really critical that you've raised that because I think all of us, in whether you're in government or whether you're in opposition, have to be really responsible here about what we're saying. We if we want to see us having a national broadcaster, if we want to see good public service, we have to see the issue of, I don't even like using the word, but the broken TV licence that we've heard so often used. We have to look at that issue of funding. But, but it's, it's not just that, is it? It's not just the funding. I think what they were talking about is other changes that they have tried to introduce in RTE, whether that's looking at RTE Lyric or RTE Gold or Studios in Athlone or Studios of Cork or all the other things yeah. that many other broadcasters in this country simply don't have the resources to provide. Yeah, well, we have to accept change will be coming and we can't, I suppose, stand up in the doll and say we're against this change and we're against that change when we've sat now through, you know, arguably months of, of, of our Octus Committee meetings where we've heard lots of changes needed. But can I just say this, Kira? The change is needed from the top, OK? We heard about excessive salaries, excessive spending, um, you know, a, a barter account where there wasn't the accountability, there wasn't but the transparency. But do we need a slim down RTE because we can look at the barter account and you can touch those allowances no, but and you can huge. cut some of those top executive pays they are huge. and it's very important but it is not a drop in the ocean when you're looking at a 55 million shortfall. Absolutely. Smith. Yeah, Does no, it need to be a slimmed down broadcaster? I, I would say all options are on the table, uh, Kira, and I, I've made no bones about that whether it's a slimmed down version, whether it's a slimmed down version of Montrose or whatever that might be, if we're serious about seeing the restructuring of RTE, that it has an existence and it has a very stable one into the future. All of that 
that, we have to be open to all of that and hear very clearly. Mm -hmm. what's in. But I, I do want to make the point, it is going to be led from the top because as Marie has said, the staff who maybe are on short contracts or, you know, be begging from Peter to pay Paul, you know, it has to start at the top. And we have seen the 100 top earners published in one version. Now, not the way we'd like it, where we have a, a more clarity around what pay scales they're on, but there's huge and excessive salaries there, up in 500,000 still. That is not sustainable for RT. And I go back to the point, they cannot live outside or above, their, beyond their means. Neither could Virgin Media. It just wouldn't function. And RT can't be any different than that. Mm. I just want to talk about, uh, Valerie, the um, licence fee. We saw, I think the Daily Mail was reporting this week, it was the worst week yeah. ever in terms of a drop-off in those who are willing to pay for their licence fee. In that context, and when we're being told by some politicians that you should pay your licence fee and it's breaking the law not to um, pay your licence fee, what did you make of Brendan Griffin's contribution today, which we saw earlier in the clip? Well, of course, it provided light relief, I suppose, didn't it? The idea of going down to the pub and buying a round of drink. Although Robert Short, the uh, staff representative, was very angry about that. And you can see how seriously he takes this. Because, you know, it, you're not giving, you're not paying your licence fee to go into the pockets of other people. It's the overall picture. Mm -hmm. And I can see why people aren't paying it. And the reason most people aren't paying it is that in a couple of months' time, the government could turn around and say, OK, We've got another way of funding RTE, funding public broadcasting, and it's not the licence fee, it's going to be something else. And you've just paid it and you go, hang on a second, why would I have done that? And I think that's why most people aren't paying it. But I also think the threat of, well, Kevin Backer said it today, he's going to cut back on outside broadcasts, he's going to cut back on podcasts, and he even did make a mention at one stage of party conferences now, there is no way the members of the Oireachtas are going to let him cut back on party conferences. So the money's going to come from somewhere for that. We're going to come live from the horse and jockey. Always. Come what may you feel, uh, Valerie. Uh, Fiona, in terms of, of where the government's at with this, I mean, we've had all this conversation many times over about you know, reform of the licence fee and a um, universal media charge or broadcast charge, etc. Do you really think this is going to be the opportunity for the government to take the bull by the horns and reform that. Yeah, reluctantly, but I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it disappearing. I mean, the Department of Finance, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform have both made it crystal clear that you can't just turn around and say, oh, there's 200 million quid we don't need anymore to collect from, from the general public. We'll just give it from the exchequer. In terms of even broadening your tax base, which you've been trying to do over the last decade, it, it goes against that, that principle. So it will remain in place. Whether it remains 160, I, I certainly don't see it going up. It's not going to go up off the back of, of this. Maybe it comes down to, to, to 150 and they, you dress it up as a, a cost it's of a living issue or something like that. You change the name of it. But I don't see it being uh, fundamentally and dramatically reformed. And I don't see that it's going to give RTE the extra revenue that they think that they're going to get. Yes, yeah, so in terms uh, out of, of that. the headache. I mean, RTE effectively, they don't really want. Uh, reform of the TV licence. They want more money from the TV licence. That, that, that's what they, uh, they want. There's, there is a big difficulty with giving it to revenue. It changes the entire perception and nature uh, of the charge. So there are there are risks uh, at, attached to that. So there's, there's, there's two things that you can do here. There's now, we know, a gap of funding before all of this saga of 35 million into RTE. We now believe there's another 21 million on top of that because of licence fee drop off. So you're in the ballpark of 50 million. You can either bridge that by giving a cheque to RTE from the taxpayer or you can tell RTE they're going to have to cut uh, their, their cost base. 
And I think the, the measure and the, the inclinations that we're hearing from the government side is we're, we'll meet them somewhere in the middle, but it's not going to be the blank cheque. All right, look, we're going to leave that there for now. My thanks to Valerie for joining us this evening. The others are going to be staying with me. And next, we're going to be talking about the crisis in the force as Gardaí vote no confidence in their boss. It's a blow to Drew Horace. Uh, stay with us. Garda Chief Drew Harris has insisted he won't quit despite a damaging Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. ...by rank and file members that threw up an overwhelming vote of no... When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Confidence in the Garda Commissioner. In an unprecedented ballot of members of the Garda Representative Association, almost 99% of those who returned their ballots expressed deep dissatisfaction with the Commissioner in a row over rosters. But the Garda Chief isn't going anywhere. So the answer is an emphatic no. That would be a, a completely um, just illogical response to the situation that we face. Neve Smith, Marie Sherlock and Fionn Sheehan are still here with me. And I'm also now joined by Brendan O'Connor, who is the president of the Garda Representative Association. Uh, Brendan, your members have voted no confidence in Drew Harris today. At this point, how would you characterise the relationship between those members and their boss? Well, I think what our members have returned in this ballot speaks volumes about that relationship and the fact that they have lost confidence in the organisation and the direction it's going and how it's been led. And they really don't recognise or feel supported 
So, and I think some of the commentary in reaction to it, and we understand that the Commissioner um, has taken it as a personal insult, and that's understandable, we don't agree that it's personal, but he's been quite dismissive of our members in stating that they didn't understand the question they were asked. So maybe that's kind of indicative of perhaps some of the, the what we're encountering and a lack of understanding and, and our members' frustration that what they say doesn't seem to be listened to. And we, as the elected representatives with a statutory function to be the collective voice, we have been voicing the concerns. We have tried to raise issues time and time again, and we have found that the levels of engagement are not meaningful. And that's reflected by what our members have said. And it's, it is unprecedented, both in the return. The fact that more members voted on this issue than on a ballot on pay, it's the highest ever return. So as a, as a representative body, and we're pretty similar to a trade union, pay and conditions on one issue, but the fact that our members engaged in, in, in bigger numbers on this issue shows the level of frustration and, and, and the level of disconnect that we that our, our members are articulating to us and we articulate on their behalf. Yeah, and you say this is you know, being directed at the organisation, but it was a vote of confidence or no confidence in Drew Harris. He said it was a real kick in the teeth. He said it was a blow. And Helen McEntee speaking uh, this evening on the news, she says you did make this personal. You did make it about him rather than the issues. Well, we can't get away from the fact that there is only one person that occupies the position of Commissioner, and Commissioner Harris is very vocal of saying that he is the CEO of Angarda Siakana, and he wants to be a true CEO. So when things go wrong and there are problems, he is the person that we would hold responsible. He's the leader, he makes the decisions, and it's the decisions that he is taking as the leader and is accountable for that are impacting on our members and that they're struggling to deal with. But Neve Smith, Helen McEntee said she has full confidence, she fully supports uh, Drew Harris. So are politicians now at odds with ordinary Gardaí? Well, I've just listened to a lot of the debate, not just today, but over recent weeks and months and over the summer months. And obviously uh, our JPC, our Joint Policing Committees, where we'd have most interaction with the Gardaí and the, and the Chief Superintendent too. And I suppose there is a concern on the ground, I'm talking about commu at community level, and I know it's reflected when Gardaí Shikana too, about where drug units are going, about community policing. Um, not dismissing that at all. Like, there's a, a concern that they may be disbanded and that would be a huge concern for them to be local about it. In Cavanmon, and we have a very small drug unit and it's a, a huge problem. And I know that's not just for us, that's across the country, but Gardaí, from what I'm hearing, would be saying that, you know, the, the changes to rosters might impact that even further. Now, as a local representative in my area, I wouldn't want to see that happen. But what I would so say... Do you support, then, the ordinary Gardaí as opposed to Drew Harris, who said, my job is to protect the people of Ireland and I have to deal with the resources in front of me as best I can mm. and this roster allows me to do that. Well, to answer your question, of course we support the Gardaí in our local communities and locally. We know that they're up against it in terms of fighting crime. Equally said, we had Drew Harris, as I can give an example, down in our chamber in Cavan County, Kent, and he would have spoken very very robustly about seeing small rural Garda stations reopening. And I suppose he might argue that, that that can be only done through a change of rostering. So I suppose my final point on it really, Kira, would be that, you know, Industrial so you're not action. Sure whose side you're taking, well, I, I mean, I can see both sides of the argument, okay? And ultimately, the citizens have to be protected of the country. Ultimately, we do not want to see our drug units disbanded. We do not want to see com community policing affected by any rosters. But I do think here that these things are, are only sorted through around the table discussions. I hear what Brendan's saying. 
I'm not sure ballots are the best way to go about that. I appreciate a balance being taken and a very strong viewpoint has been given on that, but I would really prefer to see people around the table having a conversation. Um, Marie Sherlock, if the Gardaí want to escalate this, will the Labour Party support them? Well, I think the first thing is, you know, just even in terms of the vote today or that the outcome of the vote, I don't think it can be ignored. Um, it's obviously reflective of a massive frustration amongst the rank and file members of Avangar, the Shiochana. Um, I think there are questions to be asked, though, about whether replacing the head of Avangar, the Shiochana, with somebody else is actually going to resolve the issues. Uh, and and, 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 and I, I think, to be fair, you know, the, the vote of confidence was never just about changing the head of Angarda Un Shiokana. It's an attempt to try and bring the government to a place where we actually look at the recruitment and retention issue with Angarda Shiokana, which is deepening as the years go on. I think there's been 650 less Gardaí now compared with prior to the pandemic. In my own but is area. this about recruitment and retention or is this about wanting to move from a roster that many Gardaí feel is more fitting with their lifestyle and Drew Harris saying, no, you need to do a different roster well, because actually that allows me to police this country better. Well, well I, I think ultimately he's got limited resources in terms of like he has to work with the resources that he, 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 he has. And clearly if there's an issue with the, the roster, then that needs to be worked through and resolved. Like why, you know, is there huge resistance to the roster? I think, you know, we need to probably hear more uh, about that from the GRA. But I think, I think ultimately the key issue here is replacing a person at the top isn't going to just fix the, 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 the issue. And I think that, you know, we, we have to look at what are the deep-rooted problems with Angarda Shiokana. We have to look at pay, terms and conditions, you know, the, the failure to try and attract enough okay. Gardaí in and, and ultimately ensure that, you know, we actually have the confidence of the public in the Gardaí because that, that's, that, that's in question. Okay, you know? let's go back to this current issue, Fionnán. Is there a sense that this is personal to Drew Harris? No, I think he'd want to get a bit of a ticker skin if he's going to get upset about something like this. I mean, it, it's in terms of... Well, it's an unprecedented... In terms of forms of industrial action that, that a, a union can take, this is hardly the worst one. I mean, there's nobody walking off the job uh, here. Yeah. Yes, if, if it, goes, it goes on further, uh, then fine. This is broadly a, a pretty symbolic move. Uh, you know, I think if you go into many companies across the country and say, what do you think of your chief executive? How many of them are going to be saying he's a great guy altogether? I think he's brilliant. Come off it. Uh, so I, I think you do have to look at this in the context of going beyond the question that was in front of them. Are there a wide range of issues that, that Gardaí uh, have got at the moment? Yes, there are. I mean, in terms of the basic operation of their of their job, we're only seeing this week the rollout yeah. of, of of the cameras, which are there not to just to protect the public, but to protect them as well. Still, confusion uh, over uh, how to engage uh, in in cars that that are that are speeding or, or that are engaged in crime. There are so many aspects of the job at the moment that is highly demoralising for rank and file Gardaí. And if this is a manner in which they can express that frustration, well, then fine. Yeah, but. Is Drew Harris responsible for all of those issues that Fiona just outlined there? Are you holding him responsible for stuff that he actually doesn't have control over? Well, we're holding him responsible for the leadership of the organisation and the direction, overall direction it's going. Of course, he doesn't make every single decision, but he is the CEO and he is responsible. And that's why we would feel that he is the figurehead. So it, our members came forward with this 
very strong voters say they are absolutely frustrated and fed up and, and they look to him for leadership and he's to be the conduit and our leader, not just a manager, a leader, to lead the people who are expected to go out onto the streets of this country and tackle the criminals who are impacting on the lives of citizens. And to say that the commissioner has responsibility for the safety committees, it's the members that I represent that are out there tonight in patrol cars, in the urban centres, in, in on isolated rural locations, nobody is more acutely aware of our obligation to the safety of our citizens. And what we are saying as a group of people is we're actually not being able to keep people as safe as we could if you would fix the things that are broken that are stopping us being out there. OK, but in terms of, of the roster issue, right, he wants to revert back to a roster that was agreed as part of a public sector pay deal back in 2012. Isn't that right? That's and that is a roster that your members and the GRA and the AGSI and other um, unions agreed to. Yes. It went unchallenged for years. He's just simply trying to revert back to that. Yes, we did agree on that roster and it is, it is, it is signed up to by all the associations. But during COVID, our members were asked to don the green jersey when everyone else could socially distance and protect themselves. Our members were at the front line. And we, we did stumble across this roster. We stumbled across it. But it was brought in to increase visibility because it was the maximum way of putting boots on the streets and it was effective. Yes, our members found that it actually worked well for them and the work-life balance, so they are in favour of keeping it. But what is very confusing is that last November, the Garda Commissioner wrote to us and said, going back onto the six-on-four-off that he now proposes was, couldn't be done because we didn't have sufficient resources to do it and it would impact on things like drug units, and domestic violence units. So now with 300 less Gardaí, we've been told we are going on to it and it is suitable. So there's a bit of a big mixed message there. In terms of the AGSI, they've put out a statement uh, this evening. They said the matter of confidence in the Garda Commissioner is not something that the AGSI, the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors, has ever discussed. They said it has simply not been an issue for our association. Does the GRA feel undermined by them? Not in the slightest. We represent uh, 11,000 rank-and-file members who are involved in operational policing on the front line. We speak with autonomy and authority on behalf of our members, and we respect the rights of other associations that represent our members, but we have got a very strong mandate and a very strong message for our members, and we're very confident mm -hmm. that we are in the right space, and everything we have been saying has been completely backed up by our members. There's no dispute I'm, now. I'm sure, though, the GRA, Brandon, would appreciate if the AGSA has supported them on this. As you say, it's an un precedented move by ordinary rank-and-file members who are clearly deeply frustrated with the job. And the AGSE are saying, we don't really see your problems. Well, we have to respect the right of the association to take their own position in that business for their own executive and their own members. But certainly we stand on our own two feet and we're confident to do so. How has um, Minister McEntee dealt with this? We've had the GRA come out and say, we've had more engagement with Simon Harris in six months than we've had with Minister McEntee on this. Has she been two hands off? Well, I think she has to be at a certain level because this is, I suppose, an industrial dispute, if you like, within the organisation. I think the Minister, it's important that she does keep an arm's length approach. And saying that, she has made observation and commentary around that and the commentary being that she would prefer and appreciate that there's issues with rank and file Gardaí, as I've said, and as she is, I'm sure has said to the the, uh, the community police and the drug units and all those kind of things that they're very community based and led. We don't, you know, we don't want to see them compromised in any way. So surely there's a way of sitting around the table and resolving these issues. She's, well, they've been deadlocked for nearly three years, so I'm not sure what that um, solution is going to be. She also denied this evening that there's a crisis in the organisation. This would say something utterly different. Well, it does. And I mean, it can't be in any way understated or overlooked the, the result that has come from it. There are obviously 
obviously big issues there. I know from speaking to the Gardaí locally too, there are, are issues, operational issues that they do find uh, challenging and difficult. And of course, we have seen, I suppose, Gardaí leave the job as well. There's been difficulties in recruitment, you know, and, and that's not unusual in, in a lot of industries now at the moment. So I really do go back to the point that, you know, those will have to be addressed. They can probably only be addressed in-house among the Gardaí themselves. And it would be good and important to see them having that conversation again. Is that what we need to see now, do you think? Do we need to see members like the GRA meeting in an industrial relations setting and trying to sort this out with Drew Harris? Oh, well, I, I think, like, absolutely. But I think there's, there's, there's a third part of the pillar as well, which is that the, the minister confronts the reality and the crisis that is on... in within Ungar the Shiokana at the moment. Like even when we look at the very difficult summer in Dublin and the policing issues there. And, you know, we had a 10 million euro budget allocated to overtime. But, you know, with a guard resource that is already really stretched, being able to actually use that all, that overtime has actually proved impossible, certainly amongst the, the, the guard stations that, that I'm talking to within Dublin. So I think there's, there's very real fundamental issues now about how the government and the minister in particular faces up to that crisis and actually gives you know confidence to the rank and file that actually something substantial is being done because I, I we're not seeing it at the moment there's a lot of talk about about, about helping on Garda Shiakana but we're not seeing the substance of changes in yeah, terms you have to of expect uh, accept that it's a fair point that she's making no I think Marie kind of answered her own questions there when she talked about the injection that the minister had made in terms of the investment in uh, providing extra hours for around overtime to try and address that immediate issue. But of course, no, there's other... The point they can't is that they can't take up those extra hours of overtime because there's simply not the personnel there. Well, I mean, we do we do see more and more Gardaí being uh, entering into Temple more, but of course there is a crisis in terms of staffing in all walks of life. That's a fact of life. Yeah, but we've never seen it in the Gardaí before like we do now. What are you going to do with this ballot, Brendan? Well, as I said, the GRA is a democratic organisation, so in two weeks' time we're going to convene a special delegate conference. So that make, that's made up of elected representatives from every station and every unit and every section within Garda Shia so they, we would be mandated by our members to, to, to what are the next steps to try. But and there, is, there is a two-week window there, and we are, we're a solution-based organisation. We want to engage, but we have to see a change in mindset. This, dismissing our members, dismissing the GRA, saying that, you know, that this isn't, doesn't hold legitimacy is not going to help the situation. We have tried, and we are, we have tried to speak. We have spoken on behalf of our members. This has been bubbling, and for people to say they're surprised, this there was emotional confidence at conference in April. We managed to put it off the claw, hoping that we could progress situations. But unfortunately, we are not being listened. Okay. And that's the say, overall sentiment of our members. There's only two weeks here. If nothing happens within within those two weeks, where do you think this is going to end up? Well. When when ninety nine percent of eighty five percent of your workforce who are understaffed who have been asked to go out and do a very very difficult challenging job which is completely reliant on their goodwill and the deputy alluded to the extra hours overtime where people are we were asking the same if not diminishing pool of people to do more it's really unsustainable so is it blue flu territory we're precluded from taking industrial action so we have to look at our options but certainly the the policing service in this country is only carried by the goodwill and flexibility of our members. And when you continue to, to, to poke people in the eye and, and impact on their work-life balance, uh, that goodwill tap is probably in jeopardy. All right, we're going to leave it there. My thanks to Neve Smith, to Marie Sherlock, to Fiona Sheehan and to Brendan O'Connor for coming in to us this evening. Up next, the death toll in Libya's flooding disaster could reach 20,000. What can the world do to help?
5,000 people have died and at least 30,000 people have been displaced after devastating floods in Libya. The eastern city of Derna is almost inaccessible for aid workers after two dams collapsed. Officials warn the death toll could still more than double and warn tonight it could reach up to 20,000 people. Well, earlier I spoke to Amal Barghouti from UNICEF, who's in the Libyan capital, Tripoli, about the rescue efforts there. We're doing uh, now basically life-saving interventions. Uh, we have a lot of people that are uh, displaced at the moment, like 35,000 uh, uh, up to now. We have, uh, um, among of them are, of course, uh, children. So they're basically in needs, uh, um, I mean, uh, basic uh, interventions, basic materials in terms of uh, access to drinking water, in terms of uh, medical kits, hygiene kits, and also clothes, uh, winter clothes for uh, for children. Uh, we are distributing this to uh, the main city in the east of Libya, Benghazi, which is close to uh, Derna and Marjbaida, those uh, storm-affected uh, areas and where uh, people are uh, now uh, displaced. Uh, on the other hand, on Derna city, which is the most affected city uh, in the uh, east, we have uh, the the Libya Red Crescent. Uh, they're working with the rescue team to get people out to save uh, uh, to to guide them on safe routes because uh, all the access and entrances uh, of uh, of Derna City is blocked ex except for for two entrances. Uh, so uh, our team there are uh, leading those people to get out of the city. Uh, they're also doing medical refers into in in the to uh, entrances as well. Well, Peter Power is the executive director of UNICEF Ireland and he joins me here in studio. Peter, we've heard the death toll is 5,300, at least 10,000 people unaccounted for, possibly much higher. And the chances of finding any of those people alive at this point is very, very slim. Well, it'd be really difficult uh, at this stage. I mean, such was the, you know, a wall of water it coming down into a very small area, very concentrated right in the middle of the city, washing so much of it away. Your viewers would have seen the images there. This is a real genuine catastrophe. What are the immediate humanitarian issues facing people there? Well, uh, as you can see, there's stagnant water uh, on the ground. So uh, getting in clean water, as our people on the ground uh, said there in the clip, getting clean water, sanitation and hygiene to many, many thousands of people who, who have survived this catastrophe will be the main concern, trying to uh, get supplies into what is a very challenging environment, it should, it should be said. In Libya, it will be difficult. A lot of people have lost their houses, so they will need shelter, they need tents, tarpaulins. A lot of people will have been injured, they need uh, medical care. So the full range of humanitarian assistance will be required in the immediate short term, just to pro provide for the people who, who were immediately affected. And then, of course, there will be the longer term impacts. You said it's a very challenging environment. Describe that environment for our viewers. Well, Li Libya has been in a state of civil conflict now for uh, over 10 years. Uh, infrastructure is very much degraded. That's why, why the dams failed, of course. Uh, social infrastructure, social supports uh, are very, very poor. Uh, the country is very poor, despite being very rich in natural resources, ironically. Um, and there's two, there, there are two uh, uh, governments uh, in the country, two authorities, both claiming 
uh, rights to govern. Uh, so getting aid in will be just logistically quite difficult. Uh, we're going to have to navigate that ourselves and other agencies, getting it from you know Tripoli and so forth, from our global humanitarian hubs in Copenhagen into Tripoli, into Benghazi, as our uh, person on the ground was saying there, uh, and then into Derma itself. And Derma isn't the only area affected, by the way. I mean, there's a lot of other damage, but this is where a real catastrophe occurred. You said there's two governments there, but we heard a comment today, there's two governments and not very much governing yeah. happening. So how difficult yeah. is it then to try and, I suppose, coordinate this relief effort when you have two <clears throat> governments who are dysfunctional? Mm -hmm. In a word, it's going to be extremely difficult. This is, uh, you know, really one of the most challenging environments in which to deliver what's going to be a, a very important short-term humanitarian operation where we need to get lots and lots of immediate humanitarian assistance in in a very short period of time. Uh, UNICEF and uh, the Red Crescent are partnering together. We've got a lot of supplies that we can get in via them. Uh, but the longer term uh, rebuilding, providing, you know, rebuilding the, the water services, the sewage services, the health services, the schools, houses, uh, providing for accommodation for all of these people, uh, navigating the, the, the conflicts on the ground, the, the, the fragile governance situation on the ground is going to be very, very difficult. So this is a, this is a, a, a difficult humanitarian situation, I have to say, Kira. And you mentioned the infrastructure there, and I was reading a piece to say today there were warnings about the difficulties with these dams and that they were crying out um, to be rebuilt. Yeah. But there will be no responsibility taken. There will be no accountability for this, will there? Uh, well, it's, you know, it's it's hard to see uh, in in the in the long term. I mean, the, our focus is obviously not in terms of what happened in the past. It's uh, how do we provide assistance for the thousands of people uh, who have been affected. And for us, of course, it would be huge focus on the children. Many children will have lost uh, whole families, uh, extended families and so forth. One of the things that we experience time and time again, most recently in Turkey and Syria, Morocco is another example, is that children suffer huge psychological uh, trauma. So providing them with psychological and social therapies is one of the key humanitarian interventions that an organisation like ours can do. Uh, very briefly, Peter, how can people help? Well, uh, we, we've launched uh, a, a flash appeal today. Uh, Irish, uh, Irish people have traditionally been very, very uh, generous and supportive of uh, what they can do. They can go to organisations, our website and other uh, website of other organisations who are uh, working on the ground. All right, Peter Power, thank you for coming in just this You're evening. Welcome. That's it from us from all the late team here. Good night to you all. Do take care.